The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. We're just taking a few minutes here to ground and breathe and invite ourselves to rest. I like the word to finish arriving. Yeah. It's like a car has momentum, you know, and it needs to slowly stop. And sort of we have the same thing going with our energy, our momentum getting here and through the day. Just allowing things to come to stillness or closer to that.
feel a little more arrived. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, welcome. So I have a couple of questions. Um, who's watched The Wizard of Oz? Has anybody seen the movie? One, two, no, three, four. Oh, okay. So Brian, only you have not so far. So far, but there's probably people out there that haven't watched it too. Okay. Um, <clears throat> when was the last time you watched watched it? More than five years. Okay. A while ago. Susan, don't even remember. So many years. So many years ago, Jay. Long time. Before he was born. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <Nice>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, were you interested in coming to the class because of the Wizard of Oz, or just because of the hindrances, or both? I'm just curious, and like, just just here. Yeah. You don't like the movie. Okay. Thank. Yeah. It's pretty weird. When I rewatched it, it's pretty weird. Yeah. But um, but let me tell you why I was I'm spot inspired by it. I I actually went on a, a long retreat many years ago and. For some reason, the Wizard of Oz and a lot of what was happening it came up in my meditation. And I've spent a lot of years trying to unpack and understand why the symbols and the, the memories, why did they come up in my deep, I was in a deep practice. It was actually a very profound meditation retreat. And um, the more I reflected on it, the more... I was like, wow, something in there knows something I don't. <laughs> you know, like there was just tremendous wisdom um, in, in, in kind of the insights that I found when I started to think more and more about what was represented in the movie. So I'll say more about some of those things um, after Diana gives an overview of the five hindrances, because uh, that's really, you know, that's the, the primary teaching is about sort of these five hindrances, and um, and then we wanted to use the Wizard of Oz as a more of a playful um, kind of reference, a visual reference, less heavy. We often get pretty kind of feel a sense of heaviness about the hindrances. So there's an effort to bring some lightness, joy, um, and and actual when you watch the movie, some visual clarity to how the hindrance hindrances can manifest so so welcome we look forward to playing with you and exploring and I actually will say just one more thing and then I'll ask Diana to talk about the five hindrances but there's actually quite a few books and essays written on the interpretation of the Wizard of Oz um and like there are some essays like that oh, one guy did an analysis of five different interpretations and it's like atheists and uh, Christians use the same examples to demonstrate their points so I think there's a lot of room to interpret the Wizard of Oz from a Buddhist perspective so why not <laughs> all right Thank you, Tanya. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Diana Clark, and uh, I'm very happy to be here and 
Tanya and I are great friends. We've been uh, friends for a long time. We practice together, we teach together, and cook dinner together sometimes, <laughs> and go for hikes, and all this kind of stuff. So thank you, Tanya, for inviting me. It's uh, such a delight to be teaching together. And it was uh, Tonya's idea about the Wizard of Oz, and it's like, oh, okay, but I like this idea of a little bit of some whimsy, you know, to bring this in, and some fun. And maybe what you said about the atheists and the Christians, showing that these are uh, the experiences, there's some, like, archetypes there that's not uh, something that's just unique to certain individuals, and maybe that's part of what we'll be highlighting during this course. But I'm going to begin by bringing in um, another analogy, another kind of like story or metaphor, something that uh, we might use. And many of us come to meditation practice because we want to have more ease, more freedom, more spaciousness in our life. We want to have more relaxation, whatever it is, whatever brings us less suffering. And part of our way of finding more ease, more freedom, more peace, more relaxation is to pay attention to what gets in the way of that. So often we're just trying to, we think that we just have to find whatever it is we're looking for, but it might even be more important to look at what's getting in the way to have what we're looking for. And so this analogy, this metaphor, is something that's in the Buddhist teachings. We have no interest in people becoming Buddhists, if you're here just for that, right? We, we have a, a Buddha here. This is a Buddhist center, but we, and, you know, we hold this lightly. But you will um, hear me on occasion, maybe Tanya too, referring to the Buddhist teachings. But there's this um, analogy that the Buddha uses when he's describing the path of practice, like how like practice unfolds, either over a lifetime or over a, one single meditation session. Kind of like the same um, story can work. And that is this idea of a river. So water starting on a mountaintop and then going from little streamlets and turning into a river and then going to the ocean. It's just natural, right? Rivers only go one direction, downhill, towards the ocean. The ocean can be understood as freedom, this really immense, beautiful, deep uh, body of water. And then our practice can be like this movement towards the ocean. But one thing that's in rivers, part of what makes them rivers, are boulders, big boulders, or banks, or fallen trees, or you know something like this, right? Of course, they're not streamlined. We only see those in amusement parks where it's perfectly smooth and straight down. So there's a way in which we might think like, oh, if only those boulders weren't there, then the water could go more smoothly. But there's something, there's a that we can learn from this, and that the water, it meets the boulders. It's touching the boulders and then going around or going over or something like this. It has this intimate connection with it. And it's the water then um, 
maybe slowed down or maybe sped up because of some other boulders. But it keeps on going, not by avoiding the boulders, but by contacting them. And so this is part of what we're going to be exploring. What are these boulders? And how can we like work with them in such that we are contacting them? That's the secret here. Instead of wishing that they would just go away and that... Uh, this would be so much easier if they weren't there. So in the Wizard of Oz, we might say boulders or the tin man. You know, <laughs> There's like so many different ways that uh, we might um, think about this. Things that maybe hinder or get into the... Hinder or maybe impede what we might think of as progress. But here is something that is for me, is really fascinating and interesting and um, uplifting, is that it turns out that these boulders are integral to the path of practice. They are a necessary part. And we don't think that, right? We think like, oh, I'm the only one that has this, or if only these things weren't here. But they are an integral part of practice. And we'll talk about this uh, as, as these weeks unfold. Like, how is that? How is it that they are inherent to this way of finding more freedom? Part of the answer to that, of course, is what I said at the beginning, is for us to get to know, to understand, like how these hindrances show up in our life. Because what shows up in the meditation cushion, of course, shows up in our daily life. Of course it does. We only have one mind, one body, right? So it's not like something on the cushion is completely different than we see elsewhere. But it's a way meditation allows the opportunity for us to maybe examine it in a way that we wouldn't normally. It provides the opportunity for us to even see habits that we have of body and mind that might otherwise not be... Um, so clear to us, we might just think, oh, this is just the way it is. Everybody does it this way, something like this. So it's not until we start to maybe like look at the hindrances, become more sensitive to them, that we start to gain some more self-understanding. And then, of course, we might even consider that these boulders are, in fact, I think um, we can say something, oh, I forgot that it's, exact expression, we put it on the back of Gil's book on the hindrances, something like, instead of rather being blocking, they are stepping stones. So they are something that, uh, that we use to help us get to the next stage, to help us get further in our practice. So not only because it provides greater self-understanding, but also it helps us to, it's a little bit of a, a mind training too, to, and Tony and I in these ensuing weeks will be talking about this, but to A, notice what are our reactions when we come up against something that seems to be getting in our way. What's our habitual way of responding? Do we get angry or do we start blaming or do we collapse and kind of like run out of energy and give up or do we just avoid it? Or you know, There's so many different ways that we can respond to things that are some difficulties. So working with the hindrances is a meditation 
naturally affects the rest of our life and the, all the goals and the things that we'd like to do. So that's one way in which they're stepping stones. I mean, us gaining some greater self-understanding. A second way is that part of, I keep on talking about this, what Tanya and I will be doing, um, is the way that we work with them is by turning towards them. And this sometimes is um, exactly what we don't want to do. We sometimes have this idea of, okay, well, just that thing has to go away, and then I'm going to just practice here. That thing has to go away. But, of course, that kind of pushing this aversion, which is one of the hindrances. So that's a second way. is just to have this idea that we turn towards difficulties in a way that which is not overwhelming or that doesn't... Um, cause us to collapse or um, give up or something like this, but that it just gets folded into practice. I think Gil says this pretty often, like, you know, this too. We just bring this into practice. So we'll be talking about this also. Okay, so what are these hindrances? We're using this word, uh, hindrances. I appreciate... Um, that these are captured in the Buddhist teachings, which of course are thousands of years ago. For me, that's like, I love to think about this, like how many generations of people, like maybe a hundred generations before us, like we have our parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and then just think to go back a hundred, all those people, all that time ago, they recognized the exact same thing that we experience today. This is not unique to us. Maybe the particulars are of, you know, yeah, of course, right? Modern times are different. But there's something about this universality of it that for me, I don't know, I feel encouraged by, connects me to so many other people. This is the human experience. We have these hindrances. It's just the way it is. And part of the way is we learn to work with them and be with them. And the exact same experience can stop being a hindrance without it having to go away. And that's part of the, how we work with them, is how do we can make this transition from them being a hindrance to them just being one more thing that we're aware of. And then I'll say it again. Tanya and I will talk about like some of the tools we can use and how we can uh, work with that in a way that uh, really supports our practice. So another analogy or a metaphor that we might use is um, sometimes they're called like veiling factors. So this idea of a hindrance is something that's like impedes progress. But we can also think about them as a way that are covering up or obscuring or things so that we can't quite see clearly. We don't see ourselves clearly. We don't see other people clearly. We don't see the situation clearly. When we're filled, and we all know this, when you're filled with aversion, when you're just woke up on the, that side of the bed in which you feel kind of cranky, you know, things just seem different and you're more apt to... Uh, you know, say a curt word to somebody or yell or get in a fight or whatever it might be. We all know this, that kind of the mind states that we're in affect how we interpret or understand other things. So 
these hindrances are also, we can consider them veiling factors. And as we learn to work with them, then we can find that our life just starts to unfold with more ease and more clarity. We can start to see how things really are, or maybe with less uh, obscurations or... Okay, so these hindrances, there, many of you might know this already, they're um, put into five categories, kind of like simplified and classified into these five. I don't know, maybe today we might come up with a different list of five, but these ones from thousands of years ago work as well. They're given in a traditional order. It's not the order that uh, Tanya and I are going to teach them. It is actually now. It, it is now? Okay. So okay. I was just on retreat for quite some time, so I just told Tanya, do whatever you want and I'll follow your lead. So here we are. So they're given in a traditional order. The first one is uh, sensual desire. This, uh, this wanting just the next pleasurable thing. You know, this kind of like leaning forward and, okay, this is, I need to have, you know, the most comfy chair and the best food and the right temperature and, you know, all, everything has to be just right. And this kind of wishing for everything to be comfortable and even pleasant, you know, more than comfortable, pleasant and enjoyable. So that's the first one is this thinking that, you know, this is the highest priority is to find the most pleasant thing. I want to be clear. We are not saying that pleasantness is bad. Of course not. Joy, happiness, pleasant sensations are a vital part of this path of practice. We get into trouble if we think that our whole life is about chasing them. There's nothing about, if our whole life is about just having that next pleasurable experience. My guess is you would not be here at a meditation center if you if that worked for you, right? To just be chasing the pleasant experiences. It turns out not to work so well. Maybe I'll, I'll tell a little story that um, once I was on a meditation retreat and this was coming up a lot. I was like having all these ideas, like whenever I get out of this dang retreat, I'm going to go do this and I can't wait to have that. And, you know, I'm going to buy this, eat this. You know, like I had all these like long ideas. And, um, but I was kind of like working with them, working with the hindrances, like, oh, no, no, okay, that's di- desire, Diana, and you don't have to follow that. And I knew how to work with them, so it would kind of fade away. But then it would come up again, and then I'd work with it and fade away. And I thought, like, okay, okay, I managed to get through that meditation session, you know, all right. As it happened, the um, next thing that was happening after that meditation was... Um, the lunchtime. So, you know, we go to the dining hall. <laughs> and I read the dining hall, like at my plate, like, oh, this looks really good. I'm going to have some of this. Oh, I probably need to get a little bit more. I like some of this. And then, oh, wow, wow, they have this. Okay, I need two scoops of that. And this, I had this huge amount of food on my plate, way more than I could eat. And realize, oh, yeah, so this desire is still here. This thinking that I need to have more and more and more is just showing up in this way. So sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not so obvious the way that they show up. So that's the first one. The second one is the opposite. I call it aversion. Like, I don't want this. Like, make it go away. It's this, um, like, pushing it away. Sometimes a... Uh, 
a little bit of, has this flavor of ill will, like, dang it, get out of here. You know, that kind of a feeling. Whether it's a sore knee or this persistent thought of that terrible thing that our boss said that one time that keeps haunting us, that keeps on coming up, whatever it might be, that kind of like wanting to push it away. So that's the second one. The third one is restlessness and remorse or worry. So it's this um, having a lot of energy. Like this, I'm sure if anybody has a meditation practice, you have this experience like you're sitting down and just this real urge, I want to get up and do anything except be here defrost the refrigerator, organize the sock drawer, you know, anything. So that's the restlessness. It's often called restlessness and worry, restlessness and remorse. It's not quite clear how to translate these into English, but it's pointing to the bodily experience of restlessness as well as the mental experience of restlessness, of wanting to do something different. Fourth one is the opposite of that one. We call it sloth and torpor. Kind of this language is maybe a little bit um, dated, but it's you know just completely run out of energy. It's not uncommon for people to meditate to feel sleepy. We would say that's kind of sloth and torpor. But there's also a way in which we can feel sleepy just because we're physically tired. But it also can be a way in which the mind and the body are reacting to experience. And we can notice this if at the end of the meditation period, if we feel like, oh, okay, great, I'm going to go do the next thing. But while we were meditating, we know that energy was completely drained out. So we can notice whether it's a physical thing or something with the meditation. And then the last one, it's often translated as doubt, but I, I want to maybe flesh that out a little bit. I would maybe, um, the way it gets more experienced is more like hesitation. Like, should I do this practice? Or maybe I should do this. Or, I don't know, that insight seems nice, but uh, this seems too hard. Okay, I'm going to do some loving kindness practice. But, oh wait, I can't remember the phrases. Well, okay, maybe I'll just um, do some walking meditation. I don't know, maybe those teachers don't even know what they're talking about. You know, so just this never really getting settled. Because you have this idea that, Maybe I'm not doing the practice right. Maybe the teachers don't really know what they're talking about or can't explain it in the right way. Or maybe the teachings that we've inherited from all these generations, all these uh, practitioners, maybe we might think like, oh, those are too archaic. They don't have any relevance. So it's this doubt. So maybe it's like the lack of confidence in the practice or lack of confidence in oneself or lack of confidence in the teachers. And I'm just going to say quickly one thing about doubt, because I think um, often we think, oh, the opposite of doubt. Well, let me just say this. How we often, how the antidote we might say to doubt is investigation. Check it out for yourself. Ask somebody, read a Dharma book, listen to podcasts, explore things in your own meditation practice. So we're not saying that uh, you have to have faith, you know, and that's going to take you all the way. Instead, this is a real encouragement to have some experiential, your own experience. 
as a way to support your practice and to work with doubt there. And then I'll just end with this last thing that I already mentioned it, but I think that um, it's worthwhile saying again, everybody has contact with these hindrances. It's not until you're a completely awakened person that you don't have them. Until you're like a Buddha or an Arhat or something like this. It's very easy when we run into these boulders, these hindrances, to start the narrative of the inner critic, like, oh, everybody else looks like they can do this and I can't do it, or I can't meditate, or you know, some narrative like that to start up. Everybody has these. We might idealize teachers, or we might idealize uh, things that we've seen in books or podcasts or something like this, but everybody has this. So it's there's no need for us to personalize it and feel like oh, it's a failing on our part, but instead just to recognize this is part of the human experience, is having these. And maybe with that, I'll turn it back over to Tanya. I guess I'll just check in and see if you have any questions about those five hindrances, sensual desire, aversion, restlessness and worry, sloth and torpor, and doubt, just to make sure you have a chance to... Yeah. Stephen, do you mind using the mic? There's one right here. Hello, hello. There you go. Uh, what does torpor mean? Mm-hmm. I think this is a this is a good question. Like yeah. sloth and torpor. The way that we understand it is like kind of like that that whole phrase sloth and torpor. It's like the energy is run out both of the body and the mind. So torpor we can think of like when there isn't this energy. There's like this dullness and the mind is just feels foggy and maybe cloudy or something like this, as well as not having, um, or not having energy in the body. So that's what I would... I think that makes sense. But like, you know, in my interpretation, like sloth is is, is something um, that you can contribute to. Like if you decide to be lazy or eat too much. So I'm, I'm relating to that, but torpor, it sounds like it's just more of a... An effect? I would say that, and we'll talk about these in more detail uh, soon, but uh, it turns out that uh, sloth and this idea of the body, it can be both from the environment, what we've eaten or how much we've had to sleep, or something, as well as it's not an uncommon way for people to um, kind of like disconnect from their experiences. They just kind of Mm-hmm. run out of energy mm-hmm. they don't and so nowadays often what somebody might do is just pick up their phone and kind of just mindlessly scroll or do some doom scrolling <laughs> or something like that that's how it might show up okay so something like that does fear fall under one of these categories Yeah, you know, that's an interesting one because um, I just read a different teacher's interpretation about fear, so I'll say a few things. One is they connected fear to 
aversion and or to doubt. And the way they did was they said with aversion, you know, it's about what we don't want, being afraid of what we don't want. So it's kind of grounded in aversion. And the doubt was connected because when we don't know what's coming, we're afraid, we're like, we're trying to protect ourselves in some way. Um, I've also connected it with a sense of uh, anxiety, right, worry. So, but it's, you know, more rooted, I think, in, in the, the aversion and or the doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Any other? Diana, anything you want to add to that? Maybe I'll just say that when I had mentioned, well, you know, maybe today we would divide them up a little bit differently, I had in my mind that maybe we would highlight fear as its own because it is such a common experience. But, uh, yeah, we kind of put it in there with aversion. Yeah. Most often. Great. Any other thoughts, questions? Sound familiar? Recognize the states? Yeah, great. So um, let me talk a little bit about, you know, this crazy movie, Wizard of Oz, and um, what some of the connections are and and, um, how some of the, these hindrances might be, you might be able to see them if you um, watched the movie, remember the movie, or just imagine the movie. Um, So first of all, just, you know, these characters are, exaggerations, extreme exaggerations. So just know it's there, you know, that's what makes them kind of stand out and easy to recognize. So it can be just kind of fun to think about, well, what hindrance would I match with what character? You know, just sort of like, oh, yeah. And another thing to think about is that there are, there's this idea that in Buddhism, they say there's like these different personality types. And often that's referencing people who are greed type, I want, I like, people who are aversive, I don't like, I, you know, stop. And then people who are deluded, who are just kind of out of it and in their own world. But actually, I, I, I would like to expand that to include the other hindrances, that there are personality types. We, If we stay stuck in a pattern of the hindrances, we can develop a pattern of a lot of sloth and torpors. You know, you might know somebody who you know just doesn't ever get off the couch, right? Or just can't engage mentally. And and you also might know somebody who can't ever sit down. That they're restless and they're, you know, kind of just have too much energy. So this is not enough energy, sloth and torpor, and too much energy, restlessness and worry in the body and the mind. And... um I just forgot where I was going. But, oh yeah, this exaggeration, right? So it's very easy, and these personality styles, it's sort of like the Tin Man and the Scarecrow and the Lion super kind of embody some of these hindrances. Um, of course, the Wicked Witch. Could you just write them down when you have a chance? Yeah, that'd be great. Um so um, then, so I'm going to come back to the characters in a minute, but I just sort of wanted to say that about the exaggeration. Another thing I wanted to say is that there's often multiple hindrances present at one time. So very often there's a combination of things going on. And um, so you can, we, you'll see that when we talk about the characters a little bit. 
And then um, another thing is to notice this idea of a veil or a covering, the hindrances, something that covers the way something is seen. You know, so for example, the scarecrow, he thinks he needs a brain, right? If you watch the movie from the perspective of thinking about, okay, he he is you know, very, he embodies a lot of restlessness. He moves all over. He's very sloppy in his movement. He falls, and his expressions are very erratic. His moods kind of swing all over the place. So sort of this too much energy guy. And he doesn't think he's smart. But as you watch this show, what you see is he ends up being the person who comes with all the strategies for how to get places, do things. He actually is the person who is the most kind of, you know, like thoughtful-minded in terms of he has this in himself. He has a brain, but he has this doubt and this restlessness and worry that cloud his ability to recognize his own inherent wisdom, his own brain. So the lion... Well, actually, I'm going to talk about the, um, the tin man next. So he thinks he needs a heart. And he is rusted shut, so he embodies sloth and torpor, right? He can't move, and that's kind of what happens. There's no energy. He's rusted shut. (laughs) He can barely talk. You know, they have to grease him up, help him move and get going. And and, But what he has, he thinks he, you know, he needs a heart. He thinks he's empty-chested. He said, knock on my chest, and you have this empty tin can sound. But actually, he's a romantic. You know, he talks about romantic love, and he tears up, right, which makes him rust again. So he goes, you know, they all end up on in, on the search with Dorothy to try and get these things they think they don't have, which are all within them. But the hindrance is sort of what kind of prevents them from connecting with it, and, it's, um, and it hides it from view even though it's there. It's already there. So um, another thing that um, you might think about when you think about, you know, the Wizard of Oz himself and the city of Oz, it's all green. And it's got these painted horses. It's just like crazy, fancy, wild city. And the wizard himself is is a, a fake. He's a fraud, right? So he he himself is from Kansas, it turns out, which is where Dorothy's from. And um, he's like hiding behind this curtain and using the speaker and this like t- scary visualization with little fire puffs and, you know, to intimidate people and to as- make this assumption or this impression of power. But the way that I have come more and more to see The Wizard of Oz is like a magic show. It's like the magic show that the mind is creating all the time. The mini movies that we're, you know, have going on in our heads. We're creating these stories. We're believing the thoughts that are happening. And everything gets exaggerated, blown up on Technicolor, right? when we buy into the thinking and the stories that we're patchworking together in our own mind. 
um, the mind can really fool us and thus bring up so much fear. That's like generates these senses of something terrible is going to happen. So there's this combination of like this delusion, but it's it's a magic show. He's all about magic. In fact, in the beginning of the movie, um, so Dorothy is an adopt you know adopted by her aunt and lives on the farm in Kansas and out in the middle of nowhere. And you notice in the beginning of the film, it's all black and white. It's just black and white. There's no color. And to me, this is a representation of where her mind state is at the time, which is everything is kind of all or nothing and terrible. They're going to take Toto, her dog, and she doesn't. She tries to get her aunt and uncle to ha- respond to her, and they're busy taking care of these baby chicks because the the lights for the hatchery have burnt out or aren't working. So they're not really listening to her when she's saying this woman who becomes the Wicked Witch is going to take her dog away. And so she runs away. And she packs her bag because she wants to, you know, carry off her Toto and protect him. She runs away and she runs into this guy who's um, kind of one of those traveling magicians. He's got a crystal ball. And he, you know, she asks him to, you know, for, you know, advice. And he brings her in. He tells her, close your eyes. And Oh, let me hold your purse. Keep your eyes closed. And then he <laughs> goes through her purse and pulls out this picture of her Auntie M and the farm with the little, like, weather vane on the top. And he says to her things like, oh, I see this farm. <laughs> and, and there's this weather vane, you know. And then there's this woman out there, and she's crying, you know. And, and so he's making all of this up based on, you know, what he's looked at, you know. And she thinks he's, you know, looking at his crystal ball. So this is a magic show. He's pretending to know. And what he's doing is, you know, he doesn't want her to travel with him in his little caravan. So he's motivating her to go back home out of worry for her Auntie M. And so she she runs off. But at the same time, you see, right after she goes, there's this storm coming, right? This twister is coming. And she's off, and, and he walks out of his little thing and says, oh, I hope she makes it out home okay. You know, this is a very bad storm. And he knows it, and he sent her out into it too, right? So this this trickster, he's really a trickster, right? And um, acting to be uh, this nice guy, right? So these characters from The Wizard of Oz come from you know, her Kansas place. But you'll see, if you watch the movie or think about it, you can reflect in seeing, you know, kind of the origins of a lot of what happens when the twister comes, she gets knocked in the head, the house gets picked up, carried up into the sky, and dropped into the land of Oz, this other world. And the house lands on the Wicked Witch of the East, right? Is it the East or the West? I don't remember. One of the Wicked Witches, and kills the Wicked Witch. So um, Dorothy then is on this search to get back home because she's worried about her Aunt M. So she has all this drive and desire to get back home. And she she's looking and seeking how to get home. And she's looking to others. And then she's putting her trust in this Wizard of Oz to help him help her get home. But he's a trickster, right? He's, he puts on the magic show. 
And on her journey to the Wizard of Oz, she meets all these characters, and they all come with her, all seeking from this wizard the things that they feel that they lack, that they all have within themselves. So there's the Wicked Witch as you know, greed, she wants the shoes, she wants the power, right? And she's also the wicked witch of hatred, of aversion. I'll get you, my pretty, she says, you know, she's going to threaten to kill Dorothy. The straw man mentioned sort of seeing him as the energy of restlessness and worry, too much energy, unsteady, kind of constantly in motion. Um, the Tin Man as the sloth and the torpor, the not enough energy. Um, and also, like, if you think about the Tin Man as a representation of that, that hindrance, you, you notice he speaks slowly, that torpor, the slowness of the mind, right? The mind is slowed down, and he doesn't process things very quickly. And his em- emotions are sort of dampened sort of depressed in a way. And then they come to the lion. And the interesting thing about the lion is, you know, he's um, very worried. He worries a lot, but you don't see it when you first meet him. He actually, his own doubt, his own um, hindrance, he covers by trying to, instead of, you know, the opposite of investigation, he actually pretends he's a brave bully. He, he comes out with the opposite of what he feels. So he's covering up his own doubt, his own worry, his own sort of restlessness, you know, his own worry and anxiety by pretending to be the exact opposite, right? Which is quickly uncovered. If you remember, in this, he comes out, he jumps out at them, bullying them, trying to get them to fight. And then what happens is Toto comes up and barks, and so he decides to chase Toto, and then Dorothy comes to his protection. Dorothy comes to Toto's protection and confronts the lion and slaps his nose. And then he cries. The lion just breaks down. He's like, whoa, whoa, why did you hit me? You know, all of his fears come out. Immediately he goes from bully and trying to get people to fight to just sobbing, right? And so let's see. What else do I need to say? Just a little bit more. Um, I see Dorothy, you know, as a character, she has this strong pull, this strong desire to protect Toto, to get back to her aunt, to find her way home. And I see this as what we call, um, as Chanda, healthy desire. It's misplaced, but there's this healthy desire to get home, to reconnect, you know, to sort of get back to sort of what feels right to her home. And I'll call home, you know, mindfulness, presence, being aware, being awake. And Toto, to me, is the complete embodiment of mindfulness. When you remember, at, when they're at the scene where they go back to see the wizard after the wicked witch has been killed on accident, um, Toto goes over to where the wizard is behind the curtain. Toto pulls the curtain back and exposes the wizard behind the curtain. It's his simple awareness, his ability to just sort of not get caught up in the magic show, 
to not get caught up in all the worry and all the things that I want and all the doubts and, you know, what I need. He's just like, look, there's somebody over here. Pulls the curtain back, exposes the whole magic show, right? So that's, that's how I connect with the Wizard of Oz and how I see all of these, you know, the hindrances and a little bit more as embodiments of the, the Dharma. So any comments, any, anything you want to add to that or questions? And Richard, did you write down some questions? You could hand them to me. Um, before we'll break up into small groups and we have a question for you guys to, um, to discuss with each other. But any, you want to add anything? Any other insights? Questions, clarifications? Yeah, Stephen. I have kind of a, um, <clears throat> a funny... Uh, uh, like, in, um, so like, basically, all these different uh, characterizations are kind of something that you can kind of visualize, and they're all yes. they're all happening. Yeah. When we're meditating. Yes. <laughs> so some like, more than some, you know. Sometimes you have that multiple hindrance attack, and they're all happening. Sometimes there's a dominant hindrance that's present. So. Um, you know, it's almost like some could you could associate with like different colors, emotions. Yeah. There's like these things that come up. Yeah. But um, I remember I was on a retreat and we we did a little sketch where we um, were personifying these different. Um, uh, but I ju- I just wanted to add that the insight it was. <laughs> This kind of goofy Canadian guy. Yeah, he, he had um. He just happened to have with him to, on the retreat. He wore like a. Uh, with the bicycle, or when you're in a cave, like those lights that oh, you yeah. fasten to your head. Yeah. So like uh-huh. when we did the little sketch, we, in addition to the different. Um, Hindrances. Oh. We also had. Headlamps. Um, a guy who was in sight. Oh, insight could see shine the light. Uh, yes. Um, I, th- I think that that's also, you know. That's like Toto, it, right? Shining the light, bringing the awareness onto what's real. Beautiful. Yeah. And the he- the headlamp is great. <laughs> I love it. Or, you know, like bringing insight to like, you know, even, even an individual, like uh, an example, like, like if you're feeling um, ill will towards someone, you could have like the insight that that that's happening when you're meditating yes beautiful thank you anything else can you hear me yeah okay so how about the monkeys yeah how about the monkeys (laughs) what do you think of the monkeys gus well i i just think that they come up in meditation more often (laughs) In a much less structured way than the primary characters. Right? Yes, much There's less just structured. Monkeys, right? Mm-hmm. Monkey yeah. mind, and and they're they're doing the bidding of the wicked witch. They're under the spell of the wicked witch, right? So, um, and as soon as the wicked witch dies, they're happy. They're jumping around. They're happy to be free, not be under her spell. 
you know, under her control. So I guess, you know, like, it's good to think about in what way do we, you know, get under the spell of these different hindrances and, and put into motion or actions certain things that, you know, are, are like the little monkeys just getting sent off to do things. Right? Beautiful. Thank you. Would you add anything to what I just said? Not really. I think in my practice, what I do is I just, I notice they're there and I just wait them out. <laughs> wait them it's out. It's essentially, it. you know, I just wait them out. Yeah. Great. I, I can't tell them to go. They're <laughs> monkeys. I, I can't tell them to go. So. Beautiful. And, you know, so there's a question that came in from YouTube and, you know, you're kind of pointing to what you do with these hindrances or manifestations of the hindrances. And tonight we really, and I think it's important to invite you to get familiar. We're not going to talk a lot about how to work with each of these hindrances. Tonight. 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 (laughs) So Diana mentioned something that is so important that, you know, when doubt arises or when a hindrance arises, it's very useful to investigate, to get to know it, to... Like she said, the water comes in contact with the rock. So instead of giving answers to how to work with these things this week, we're going to help name them, help you kind of start to identify them, and invite you to not take them so personally, and see what you can learn about these qualities, these mind states, these veils, these hindrances as they come up in your life. Don't take them so seriously, right? Don't get too wrapped up in trying to block them or prevent them. You don't want to be acting from them, but if you can, turn toward them and learn a little bit about them. So, yeah. Oh, nice. Do you want to? The question was, I was curious about how emotions surrounding guilt come into this with the hindrances. Yeah, guilt, this is a very uh, interesting topic. And maybe I'll just say um, briefly, and kind of like in the Buddhist um teachings, we don't focus so much on guilt. We're more about remorse. And then what's the difference? Guilt has the sense of like, oh, I'm a bad person. I did this thing that harmed somebody or harmed myself. I shouldn't do that. And I should stop doing that. And next time I'm not going to do this or something like that. So there's a focus on the individual feeling bad and kind of like, yeah, feeling bad, I'll say. Remorse has a focus on, oh, there's this harm that caused, that got caused. This person is suffering and this is, um, nobody wants to suffer. And how can we uh, alleviate or diminish the suffering in other people? So it's not so much about me as a bad person. It's more about, oh, there's harm that got caused and let's 
not cause harm. So it has a different shift, a different emphasis. And remorse goes in with restlessness. I would add that um, I think guilt, like some, it's good to again investigate. So when you feel guilty about something, What's kind of underneath, the, like listen to some of the thoughts, listen to the associations that are happening in the mind. It, it could so easily be, you know, maybe you had hatred come up. Maybe you expressed hatred, you know, and you or you didn't express it, but you felt it. So you feel guilty about it. You feel you're a bad person. So it's sort of like having aversion to aversion. And then it creates a sense of, oh, I feel bad, you know, this bad, I'm bad. It also, for me, is like, sometimes I will get tripped up in this doubt that's a doubt-guilt dance. It's like something about, like, oh, I probably said that wrong, you know. And it's like this awful, horrible space of feeling this doubt that comes out in a way like, I'm guilty, I'm bad, I'm not good enough. So... You've got to kind of, there's so many ways these things get masked, masked, you know, <laughs> covered and, um, and manifested. So investigate, try and see for yourself. So I hope that was a, a, a good answer out there. Thank you for asking. So let's, let's give you a little bit of a chance to break up and to, you know, We've got one, four, seven, so two groups, right? And um, my, why don't you go ahead and just make a small circle here and a small circle here, and then we'll give you the next set of instructions. It's an opportunity for you guys to talk to each other instead of just listening to us all the time. And once you get there, just start by sharing your names and maybe, you know, how much you've been to IMC or where you live or something silly, pleasant like that. Just so you can see that. Yeah.
Okay. So our thinking is that uh, maybe I'll just first briefly uh, remind us of the hindrances. There's kind of like this desire, the leaning forward, and aversion, leaning back, kind of push-pull, too, we can think about. And then there's uh, too much energy, restlessness, or not enough energy, sloth and torpor. And then there's this fifth one, doubt or hesitation or uncertainty or not knowing. So those are the five. And as uh, Tanya was saying, it's uh, not uncommon for people to have one that tends to show up a lot for them. If you might know that if you're somebody that's always looking for the next exciting new thing, or maybe you're somebody who finds it difficult to sit still or whatever it might be. So just to share a little bit, is there one of these hindrances that for you feels, um, I don't know, particularly interesting or juicy or something you'd like to work with? You do not have to share any of your deep, dark secrets or anything like this, but is there one of these five that right now kind of has caught your attention and you'd like to pay more attention? It's either because it shows up a lot in your life or maybe because you doesn't show up at all, or you don't see it, or you don't understand it, or something like this. And so, just um, I have an opportunity for each one of you to kind of like share which uh, hindrance, and then um, after each one of you has had a chance, then you can just maybe open it up for a more general discussion. But maybe just some general guidelines is we're not giving advice to each other. There's a no reason to do that, and maybe that's it. We don't have to tell long, complicated stories. We're not going to be here for the whole evening. So, you know, just enough to kind of give the flavor of uh, what you're talking about or what you'd like to share. And then Tanya and I will ring the bell in a little bit. But just an opportunity for you guys to talk to each other and have a chance to talk instead of just listening to us all the time. And maybe just generally speaking, each person can talk for one to two minutes because we'll probably have about 10 minutes in the small group total. So if you just kind of keep a little bit of a loose eye so everyone gets a chance to share and then a little bit of time for reflection together. Thank you, Jay. If you, but if you, at, at any point, if you want to grab one or both of us, we're happy to come over and engage if you're feeling like you just need a little bit more of our help or support or anything. We're right here for you. <laughs> I, I kind of wish I could listen in. <laughs> I have learned... What would you share with me about how that was? Is there anything you feel comfortable sharing about your conversations? There's the microphones. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, it's uh, we all have our own ways of in which the hindrances represent represent themselves. Like, for example, I hardly ever am in silence. It's either something, some music playing or a video playing. Um, 
you like videos and looking for comments, right? Netflix. There's different things that we do, you know, and, and we try to classify them in our in our conversations, right? And for me, a lot, of, I think a lot of it is like avoidance. Like, yeah. some of the things I do is avoiding dealing with something. Yeah. Um, and you know, for some of the other um, people in the room, what was the fourth one? The sloth interpreter, where it's just low energy. You're just kind of, you know, disconnecting from things for a while. Thank you so much for saying that. That's nice. It's very cool that you were kind of describing what you do and seeing and kind of mapping and seeing that we it shows up differently for everyone, right? That's that's so beautiful. And that's the thing. They're going to it's not always, you know, it's not cut and paste, right? It's going to manifest differently. So I didn't even realize it before we were talking about it, but um, like we were just talking. So like nine o'clock at night, I turn on Netflix and I tune out and I never thought of it as torpor before, but I, I like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't see it as a negative. I mm-hmm. see it as a positive. Mm-hmm. It kind of refreshes my mind in a way. And um, to me, I always thought those two, sloth and torpor, were like really negative. And um, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> nice. You know, I, I think Diana wants to say something too, but I think our, when we get out of whack with our energies, you know, one of the things that can happen is, like, if we're doing too much concentrating, too much making and doing, the opposite is, you know, happens. It comes up, and that's the sloth and torpor, right? There's a certain way in which there's a, a, an effort to kind of rebalance, but we're going from a pendulation. It's too too big. The swings are too big, right? So what were you going to say, Diana? Oh, I was going to say, right, we're calling these hindrances because they're getting in the way of something. So turning on Netflix itself and tuning out may not be a bad thing. It might be just the right thing, kind of like help the body and mind relax and like disconnect from the day or something like that. Mm-hmm. So maybe in that way it's not a hindrance. It's, so, it works for me. Yeah, so... And there's, I see it, like I said, you, I, see it as a, oh, I see it as a positive, not a negative. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about things you know, that are getting in the way of things that we want in our lives or in our meditation practice. Mm-hmm. Great. Anything else anyone wants to share? Maybe I'll uh, just address this. So a question. How do the hindrances relate to the Noble Eightfold Path? Are they manifestations of wrong view? I wouldn't say that there are manifestations of wrong view. These are just natural things that happen. Instead, the hindrances are an integral part of concentration practice and mindfulness practice. In fact, we're going to talk more about mindfulness in this class, but one way if we were to teach concentration, one way to think about concentration practice is hindrance practice. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Because hindrances are what get in the way of kind of like getting settled. So in some ways we might even say mindfulness practice is hindrance practice too. Like noticing what gets in the way of, uh, of being present for what's happening. So 
That's where they show up in the Eightfold Path. Yeah, and I would say, I think the wrong view comes in if we have the wrong view of the hindrances. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if we're, if we're relating to them from a perspective of aversion, right? It, like there's a... Um, and not recognizing the suffering that they can cause. You know, that's where maybe we might want to look at how they get tangled up with the wrong view. Yeah, I, I would say, like, maybe if we do take them personally and it's yeah. like, oh... I'm a bad meditator, I'm a bad person. Mm-hmm. If we kind of like take that on, that's definitely, would, I would say, be wrong view, kind of like personalizing them. And if you don't know what the Eightfold Path is, that's perfectly fine, too. <laughs> I'm trying to read. Uh, so, are there some aversions, killing, etc., that may be actually good? Can you comment? Yes, of course. <laughs> I don't want to talk about uh, uh, specific ones, but of course we need to uh, turn away from some things. We need to set boundaries. We need to mm-hmm. um, say, this is not good, I'm not going to do that, or something like this. Or it's, So it's not just uh, trying to be a doormat and allow everything to flow through. We're talking more specifically things that get in the way of our life, get in the way of our meditation practice. Seeing clearly, getting in the way of seeing clearly. Thank you. Getting in the way of seeing clearly. Yep, yep. Yeah. So um, let's just see what you guys like. There's going to be a... One of the things we're going to teach to help work with the hindrances is a practice called raft. So we could do a a very short, very short, five-minute guided raft practice if you want that experience. Um, Yes, I see one head. Yes, two. Uh, It's a practice, a mindfulness practice. The acronym is RAFT. So it's a guided practice. Yeah. So we've got a yes, I think. Enough of a yes, Diana. In five minutes? In five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Maybe six. Let's, uh, let's take a, a posture that um, has some alertness, but also some relaxation. Just tune in, in general, to how the body is right now. Is it have too much energy, not enough energy, or... Is there some wishing that you could go home? <laughs> wishing that uh, get away from something, or maybe that's showing up in the body in the physical experience. Just in a relaxed, easy way, tuning in. Nothing in particular needs to be happening. We don't need to do anything in particular. Just bringing our attention to the bodily experience in general. And then can you recognize, oh yeah, There is a little bit of restlessness or a little bit of tiredness or a little bit of push or pull. 
Can you recognize, can you tune into that? And can you allow it to be there? It is there already. Can you just allow it to be there? Without having aversion towards aversion or aversion towards restlessness or any of that, right? Aversion is one of the hindrances. Can we allow this experience during the meditation to be there? of the supports for allowing it to be there is to tune into the physical experience. That's how you discovered it initially, but often we get go into a story. But can you go back to the physical experience? For example, restlessness might feel like there's a lot of buzziness or energy bouncing through the body or maybe the legs or the arms feel a little energized or maybe sloth and torpor maybe there's some tiredness around the eyes or heaviness in the shoulders there's some desire there might be a slight leaning forward or up with the chin with aversion, maybe there's a little slight, you know, pulling back. Can you feel in the body? That experience. Letting the thoughts take care of themselves. We're focusing on the bodily experience. something else that can help you allow the experience to be there is to tease apart, to separate what is the actual experience the restlessness in the body example separate, tease apart from our reaction to that we don't want it to be there for example These are two different things, restlessness and not wanting them to be there, for example. Might be the restlessness is in the body, and maybe not wanting to be there is in the mind, or maybe that's just aversion. But can you tease apart the experience 
from our reaction to the experience. is very quick recognize R allow A F feel in the body T T's apart and then you had a second T yeah so what did what happened in your meditation that you feel was useful that you can trust what did you see what did you feel what did you notice there was something that you you could rely on. So the T, the second T is trust. Like, oh, it was helpful to try and pull apart these two pieces. When I pulled them apart, oh, I felt a sense of, like, ease in my body. It didn't feel so heavy, for example. So were you able, it was a short practice, but was there anything that became more clear to you that seemed helpful about recognizing, naming? Maybe it was just, oh, just recognizing that this is going on is helpful. Right there. Oh, can I trust that if I recognize this, it's helpful? So this idea of trusting what you can rely on in the practice is a nice place to end the practice. Kind of helps you let go a little bit. You feel that? That sense of, Okay, it is good, it's useful to, re- to recognize, for example. Yeah, makes sense? So it's kind of a little resting, stopping point <laughs> for the raft. So we'll be spending much more time with this R-A-F-T, raft. Yeah. Recognize, allow, feel in the body, tease apart, trust. Yeah. So, oh, 8 o'clock, okay if I just do a very brief summary before we end? Okay, so the five hindrances arise in meditation and our daily life, right? They're natural, they happen to all of us, they're just a normal part of being human. We want to encourage you to approach working with them, recognizing them with curiosity, with a lightness, not a heaviness. And... um, just part of that is that we tend to actually reinforce them when we have a like, <gasps> oh no, reaction, or we try and get rid of them. We're, we kind of tend to grow them. They get stronger. So a light, a light approach, a normalizing approach, and not taking it personal. And then, you know, one interesting way for me of noticing hindrances present is actually to notice what do I share with others or what do they share with me? Like somebody comes home and all they do is complain, 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 right? So that's somebody manifesting the hindrance of aversion or they're, I can't know, what should I do? Just that simple thing. What's their, what are they talking about? What am I talking about? That can help us see the hindrances when they're present.
And so this week, just the invitation is to just be curious and to see if you can notice when these different states come up. And then notice what happens when you recognize them. And can you, if you were thinking about raft, if you recognize it, notice, can I allow this hindrance to be here? Or am I having aversion to it or trying to get rid of it? Just, just that simple. So thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you hopefully next week. Thank you. Thank you. If you're like, you're welcome to come up and talk to us uh, if you have some comments or otherwise. We look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>